We're in Psalm 79 this morning, Psalm 79, if you're new to the Sunrise family here. We go through one psalm a week in the summer. We've been doing this for a number of years now, and our study has brought us now to Psalm 79. And we're in the midst of a series of psalms, and these psalms really, uh, in, the, in this grouping, are lamenting all, of the, all that's been lost in Israel. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And specifically, I think this particular psalm is related to the fall of Jerusalem, which would have been around 586-587 B.C., and we'll speak more about that in just a moment. You know, throughout world history, we can put our finger on certain dates, and we can look at certain events and say, that changed the course of history, whatever those events were. If you look back over maybe the last hundred years or so, we have a few of these, like when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, really was the spark that kicked off World War I. Or I'll give you a date, and let's see who knows what happened on this particular date. I think this one may be generational a little bit. December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor. And all the people my age and older said Pearl Harbor. June 6, 1944, I think most know this one. D-Day, D-Day invasion, which really turned the tide in the war during World War II. September 11th, 2001, a date that has become known just by the date, 9-11. There's certain events, and these are markers on the timeline, and history's changed by these events. If you look back at place a pen and say, that changed the course of history, that changed the course of Israel's history in the Old Testament in particular. There's a few of these. We've been talking a little bit about the Exodus event. I'll put a timeline up as we speak through this for a moment. The Exodus event was changing for Israel. Israel was not a nation. There was this family from this random, somewhat random from our perspective at least, this random guy named Abram. Later, his name changed to Abraham. And the Lord chose him, made a covenant with him, said, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be fruitful, multiply. There's a nation that's going to come from you. And from you, there's going to be land, seed, blessing. And you're going to be, an, you're going to found this abundant nation. Well, this family goes down to Egypt, and they are just trying to avoid famine. They're trying to live because Egypt has been well-stocked. And they go down, and eventually this nation grows and grows and grows, and 400 years or so later, they are now oppressed people, and they're a slave people. And they form a rebellion under God's leadership and direction and with some divine assistance, and the nation of Israel is formed. I've been thinking a lot about Haiti lately. I was supposed to go down to Haiti last month, and many of you are aware that uh, Haiti, Haiti on a good day has been a mess uh, for many years, and it's been particularly bad over the last few years with so much unrest and uncertainty and so much chaos in the government. So I was supposed to go down and do a commencement address for Willio, our missionary down there, um, but just the situation, he advised me not to come, so I was sad about that. I haven't been in a few years. I used to go once or twice a year for a number of years, and a lot of times when you're talking to people about the history of Haiti, they'll remind you that Haiti, the, the country of Haiti, it's the only in history, it's the only successful slave rebellion that became its own nation, the Haitian people were uh, slaves from the West Indies under the French uh, occupation of Haiti, and eventually there was a slave rebellion, and they founded the country of Haiti. And always in my mind, I footnote that and say, I think that's the second slave rebellion in history that became actually its own country. I'd put Israel first. They were a slave people, 
formed, really, in slavery, came out and under God's direction and leadership, this is the first nation that's ever done this. And of course, Israel is still around even today. So God did a a work, a fantastic work, and brought them out. But then Israel has this series of judges. That's the period. I don't have that listed for you. So between Moses and the Exodus, around 1500, for our Bible scholars amongst us, I'm rounding off some numbers for easy memory uh, here so we can get a little bit more particular on some of these. And so we move into this period until the monarchy is established and ultimately David would become the king after Saul, and then his son, Jonathan. After this, the kingdom splits and Israel begins to spiral, and it's not good. It's not good at all, and we've been speaking a little bit about this over the last few weeks. Uh, Both Psalms 78, uh, 77 and 78 have mention of the Exodus event, and then our next couple of Psalms will also mention the Exodus event as well. And so this is where we are. I think Psalm 79 is probably, though it's not explicitly mentioned here, I think it probably is coming to us around the time of the fall of the southern kingdom. Now let me show you a couple of things here. I've shown you this map a couple of times now. Jerusalem is right in here. Um, this is where Jerusalem is. And there's an, you'll see up here in the big letters, Ephraim. The original capital of Ephraim is right here, Shiloh. Um, after their rebellion, and this is recorded for us in 1 Samuel, you can read 1 Samuel like 1 through 5 or so, and it'll tell you the story of God's rejection ultimately of the line of uh, Eli, the priest, the anointing of Samuel, and then eventually David would become king instead of Saul. And so there's, there's sort of a reboot. Uh, there's, a, there's a reboot, a 2.0 uh, of sorts that takes place. And this, the, the kingdom continues on unified for a little while before it splits. After it splits, this is the general idea. I know that's a little too small for you to read all the particular cities. Those aren't important. Just want you to see the big picture. We have a northern kingdom and we have a southern kingdom. And Israel, of course, is in this, or, uh, Jerusalem, of course, is in the southern kingdom, which is where the temple is, which is what we're going to talk about today. So Israel, after the split... Israel refers to the north, Judah refers to the south. So you need to know where we are. As we walk through this, I mentioned earlier that the Psalms are divided into books. So there's books within the book of Psalms. And we're here in the midst of a series of Psalms that deal with the exile, the destruction that happened around the fall of Jerusalem and even before that, the fall of the northern kingdom as well. And so as we walk through these, just one after one, you got to probably hang in with us a couple of more years here in Psalms to get to the happy parts in Psalm 90. So welcome to Sunrise. We're so glad that you're here. I think it's important exercise for us, though. I think it's important to walk through these texts because your life isn't all roses either, is it? You deal with difficulty and hardship, and it's helpful for us to reflect and to see how did others deal with great disappointment, with rebellion, with disobedience, with the Lord's chastising hand. How did others deal with that? So that's what we're going to see today. I'll give you four points as we walk through this. We'll do a little bit more history work, which I think is significant, and then we'll get to some takeaways at the end before we celebrate communion together. So first we see the defeat, and again, I 
believe this refers directly to the fall of the temple there in Jerusalem. We see the seeming silence of God. God doesn't respond as they want him to. We see the pleading of the people, and then we see finally resolve of trust with the people. Let's read our psalm. So Psalm 79. A psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beast of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins. For your name's sake, why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come up before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. If any of you are involved in real estate, you probably know the three keys to real estate, right? What is it? Location, location, location. That's actually not a bad principle to start with when you read your Old Testament as well. Where are we? And the other question we could ask is, when is it? When are we talking about? There's so, it's so significant to understand where are we in Israel's history. When you're reading Genesis, it's a different story than when you're reading First Chronicles, let's say, which is recounting the history of Israel. Here we have, in verse 1, the nations, they've come into your inheritance. Now, the inheritance is, of course, the land, the land of Israel. This was a land that was promised to Israel and delivered to Israel promised all the way back in Genesis and delivered. We see this in Joshua and Judges. We see Israel has taken possession. And we see also places in the Old Testament where it says that Israel had a mission. They were to be a light to the nations. And we see this in some level of success when places like in Solomon's reign where the queen of Sheba, it says, comes to him because his wisdom was known all throughout the region. And so the nations are coming to him to hear the wisdom. And Israel was supposed to be this city on a hill, as it were, and they were supposed to be a place that draws in the nations. And they say, look at these people. They're different. They live by a different standard. They have a higher morality. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. But now the nations are here. They're in Israel. Remember, location, location, location. They're in Jerusalem, but they're not there to learn stuff. They're there to destroy and to take stuff and to kill and to murder. It's all messed up. This is not how it's supposed to be. The nations, they've come into your inheritance, but not to learn, 
They've come and they've defiled your holy temple. They've laid Jerusalem in ruins. They came with murderous intention. And I do think this refers to the siege that took place when Jerusalem finally fell. In Jerusalem, there would have been city walls. Maybe some of you have visited ancient cities and you've seen city walls and ruins of the walls. And when you wanted to conquer a neighboring city or a neighboring country, many times they would practice a form of siege warfare, which is pretty much what happens all throughout history. War is the history of this. And so you would cut off supplies to the city, and so eventually they would have to break. If there's not enough food, not enough water, not enough supplies, and eventually they would just wait you out. The, the supplied army would wait outside the city. And so this went on for a long time, actually. And you can read about this. I won't read you all of these verses, but if you want to read about this, you can read about it in 2 Kings 25, 1 and following. I'll read you just a few lines from this to give you a feel for how it went. Nebuchadnezzar, familiar name from the book of Daniel, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it, and they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. And so they built a, they, they came and they just camped out around the city walls so that they, you know, you could knock on the door and say, hey, we're an army, we're here for your city. Probably not going to work, probably not going to open up, can't just ring the doorbell. They're not going to let you in. And so they had the tactical advantage, the Israelites, if you're just starting an all-out war, they had the tactical advantage of being on the wall. They had archers, and so very, very difficult to take over a city in that way, but just to wait them out. We're just going to wait. We're just going to wait until you have to finally open that door to come out. And that's exactly what happened. So they besieged the city a little over a year or so. This took place. And then verse 3, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land, all right? So they've waited them out, and finally they have to break. They're starving to death. It's either face our captors, face the army, or we die in here. There's no good option. Then a breach was made in the city, and all of the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were all around the city. They're surrounded. There's no way to escape. Verse 5, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. And so finally, they have to open up, and they give in, and their captors come into the city, and they defile the city, they destroy the city, and they desecrate the temple. That's the context for this psalm and what's going on. They defile the holy temple. God had supernaturally dealt with them before. There had been other times when people tried to come and tried to take over Israel. One story in 2 Kings 19, when Sennacherib tried to come and tried to take over, but he wasn't allowed. The Lord stopped him. Listen to this, 2 Kings 19, 33. By the way that he came home, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And so the Lord fought for them before. Now, this is before this incident with Nebuchadnezzar. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when they rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. 
So Israel is, they're in the city. They think they're about to get captured and God fights their battle for them, strikes the people dead and they go out and the army's dead. They're gone. The king turns around, he runs away. Israel enjoys peace and prosperity for a little while. Now this new person, this new king has come. He's got his army and the people are crying out, God, are you gonna do it again? Um, Hey, they're out there like now, God. God, do your thing, let's wait. But God didn't. It goes quiet. What is the Lord doing? Surely God isn't going to let this happen, right? Just like all the movies, all the Marvel movies, where, you know, at the last minute when the battle's almost lost, Captain America and Captain Marvel and everybody shows up and, hey, good guys win um, in the end. Surely God's going to just show up and wipe them all out. But he doesn't. God, why are you closing us off? How long? Bodies of your servants, the birds of the heavens, verse two, they've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh, the faithful to the beasts of the earth. There's just, it's carnage. Without being too graphic, there are dead bodies everywhere and the wild animals are just feasting on these people who have been ruthlessly killed by the enemy and just left. Even in our culture today, most, and pretty much most every culture that I know of, at least, has some respect for the body. Uh, Fallen soldiers, there's a certain respect that you have for that, even an enemy soldier in most contexts and places. The bodies of these people, they're just killed and left, desecrated, left to be picked apart by the birds. They've poured out, verse three, they've poured out their blood like water, All around Jerusalem, there's no one to bury them. It's just a sign and scene of utter, complete slaughter. It's terrible. Verse four, we've become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. Hey, aren't you the ones that God promised this land to? Aren't you supposed to be here, was it that, forever? Isn't this your place? Where'd your God go? I thought he was gonna protect you. Don't you have all these psalms about God's your refuge and he fights your battles for you? Don't you have this whole story about the Exodus event? What happened? Where's your God? What's gone wrong? Why did he not act? You're taunt. They're taunting their neighbors. I would imagine. Now, you always want to be careful when you're reading your Bible. You want to be careful of not finding too much in the white spaces. You know what I mean by that? Like you read your Bible and there's what the text says and then there's sort of an imagination that we can toss into it sometimes. So don't read too much into the white spaces. But just think about the situation though. They were being under siege for a year. The soldiers are right there. There's other soldiers right here. And I would imagine there's even like some conversation that's going on in the course of that year plus between the soldiers. Hey, you know we're coming in there eventually, right? Nope, not opening the door, not today. And there's this taunting that's continually going on. And that's the situation. It's defeat. It's utter, complete defeat. It's violent. It's terrible. War is always that way. So what do we see God do? Well, nothing initially, and that is disturbing. Verse five, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? God, when are you going to do something about this? They send up the signal calling for help and nobody comes. God, do something. How long, O Lord, 
Implied in the question, how long, O Lord, is the idea that it's not going to last forever, right? How long it's going to change. Many of you have prayed a prayer very similar to this, and I understand. How long will I be sick? How long will I have this relational stress? How long will I have financial problems? How long am I going to deal with this temptation? How long am I going to deal with this sin? How long am I going to deal with that very difficult person that's in my life? How long, oh Lord, are you going to do something about this or not? Many times, maybe you experience this, you feel like you pray and your prayers hit the ceiling and come right back down. Does anybody ever feel that way? Maybe we should do a show of hands with heads bowed, eyes closed. I think just... To be clear, I think everybody in this room would admit that they feel that way sometimes. I think sometimes people come to church and they see somebody like me stand up here, you know, David and uh, some of the church leaders, and you just think, oh, those guys don't have, like, they got it figured out. Like, they don't struggle. <laughs> you know, don't talk to my family later. Um, you'll, you'll find out the truth. We all feel that way sometimes. We all feel like we're just, we're just out there. We're out there and we're deserted by God. In fact, some historians in the Puritan era, they talked about spiritual desertion. I feel like I've been deserted by the Lord, just left out on a desert island. God, what are you doing? How long, Lord? A couple weeks ago, I did a study of Charles Spurgeon for those that were able to be with us on Wednesday nights. We, I mentioned a little while ago in our summer fellowship series, we pick one historical figure in June, July, and August this year. We're doing great preachers from the past So I did a study of Spurgeon. One of the most moving parts, I think, of the life and writings of Spurgeon is when he talked about his own difficulties, his ailments. He died a relatively young man at 57 years old. And some people would look at Spurgeon and say, well, that guy had it all. I mean, he had the megachurch, like one of the original megachurches, arguably one of the most influential pastors in all of world history, really. Uh, Just incredible ministry. But he had, he had his own struggles as well, and he struggled deeply with depression. And really, out of the blue, he had physical ailments which could, could cause this as well. Spurgeon said this, depression of spirit is no index of declining grace. The very loss of joy and the absence of assurance may be accompanied by the greatest advancement in the spiritual life. Don't undervalue and underestimate the Lord's work when you feel you feel, which is a subjective thing, you feel as if God is least active in your life, that might just be the place where he's actually most active, but you won't know it probably in the moment. Trust the Lord. Trust his process. Spurgeon also said, when the gold knows why and wherefore it is in the fire, it will thank the refiner for putting it into the crucible and will find a sweet satisfaction even in the flames. Isn't that great? When the gold knows why it's in the fire, then it changes our perspective. Martin Luther, another name that many of us are familiar with, one of the reformers. Luther was sort of a bowling ball personality. He just was big, gregarious, just out there. But he was known to have ups and downs as well. One time he was particularly sad for a series of days And his wife, Catherine, went and put on uh, all black, like funeral clothes. And uh, he came and he said, why are you dressed like that, Catherine? Uh, And she said, someone has died. She said, who? Asked Luther. It seems that God must have died. (laughs) Luther got the point. 
you're acting as if God is dead. That's if there's no hope in this life. There is. There is. That's not the end. God's still at work even when you can't see it. So don't take God's perceived silence to be inactivity. That's not it. Next, moving on. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? God will avenge. And then the petition. And this will take us down through verse 12. God's petition to act. Verse 6, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. They have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. So the first part here, verses six and seven, he's calling on them to do something about these nations, these, these terrible people, the people that don't identify themselves with the people of God. Do something about them, Lord. This reminds me a lot of Habakkuk, which we studied not too long ago at our nine o'clock hour. Um, Habakkuk's a, it's a great little book. Uh, it's one of the Old Testament, what's called the Minor Prophets. It's a short book. It's only three chapters. And Habakkuk works a little bit differently than the other prophetic books because what you have in Habakkuk is it's a back and forth between the prophet and God. So the prophet, Habakkuk, complains to God. And we have his prayer, his complaint. Hey, God, are you going to do something about this world? <laughs> this place is kind of messed up. And then God responds, and Habakkuk responds, and the book goes back and forth like that. So Habakkuk says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Sounds a lot like our psalm. And you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. God, how long are we going to do this? And the Lord says, Oh, I hear you, and I'm doing a work, but you're not going to believe it. This is just before the fall of Jerusalem. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. These are bad people. The Lord recognizes that, and yet he gives them free reign to go and to do what he wants them to accomplish. It's an amazing thing that we see. And the Bible doesn't seem to be nervous, not as nervous as we are when we start talking about these things like sovereignty of God and responsibility of man and what is it about the will and how free is the will and all of those questions that we get into. doesn't seem to be nervous about that. You guys want to go conquer this nation? God finally says, okay, opens the gate, go get them. And then he brings them into judgment for doing exactly what was already in their heart to go and do. God's going to judge He's going to do it. And the Israelites are pleading with them, with him to do it. But that's not the whole story. It's not just them. This happened for a reason, all right? This happened for a reason, very clearly in the Bible. It tells us over and over and over again. The reason this army was here, the reason God allowed them to be conquered was because of their own sin. And the psalmist recognizes that. Look at verse 8. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. He's recognizing there's responsibility. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. All right? So we recognize that we're complicit in this. There's a reason why these things have happened, and it's because of our own sin. One of my brothers, when he was younger, he had the hardest time grasping cause and effect. 
and punishment in our house. Young parents, or parents of young ones, I should say, you're probably struggling a little bit with this as well. If you do this, there's going to be a consequence, cause and effect. You push this button, this happens. You disobey mom and dad, there's a consequence that's coming. So my mom locked in with my brother. I'll tell you which one. It was David. You don't know him. Anyways, some of you do. He wouldn't mind me telling the story. He's a pastor, actually, so he totally understands the opportunity for a good illustration. You just have to capitalize when you get it. So David, when he was younger, he called, my mom's name is Marie, and David, and we're talking a little guy at this point, he didn't call her mom, he called her Miri, all right? So little dude calling his mom Miri. And so he would, he would disobey, and there would be a consequence, and then Miri would ask him, David, do you know why I did this? Yes, because Miri is mean. <laughs> Every time, every time, Miri is mean. And so that was the joke for the longest time is Miri's just mean. That's just all it is. That's the only possible answer for why this is happening to me. When we read the Bible, I feel like I'm watching that play out sometimes. Israel is, they're, they're looking around and they're like, oh no, what happened? The land's lost. Oh no, there's this army that's coming up. God told you exactly what was going to happen. Deuteronomy 27, 28, there's blessings and cursing. Choose which one of these paths are you going to go down? It's not because God's mean. It's predictable. God, in the Old Testament in particular, we can see this principle played out. It's like a thermometer. You do this, you get this reaction. Now, God is gracious. He's kind. And he, of course, and that's what they're appealing to here. They don't appeal to their own righteousness. They appeal to God's compassion and his own name. That's the only hope that you have. It's the only hope I have. There are two sins in the Old Testament in general that we see Israel continually committing idolatry and injustice. The prophets talk all the time about this, and you really won't find anything that doesn't fit in one of those two categories. They're idolatry and injustice. So they know why this is happening, and they appeal. Notice the basis for their appeal. Verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation. Why? For the glory of your name. This is about you. For your name's sake, do this. It's not for us. It's not for our own righteousness. What else do we have to lean on? God's righteousness, his character. What's the basis of your forgiveness? Is it you? Something you've done? Maybe you threw a couple extra in the I was going to say the offering plate, but we don't really do this anymore in the box, the giving box in the back or online on the app. What's the basis of your righteousness? God's character. God's gracious. He's kind. That's the basis. You can't work your way to salvation. You won't. You can't. You didn't. Verse 10, continuing to appeal to God's reputation, God's character. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Don't let them do this, Lord. You promised that you're going to do this for us. Follow through, Lord. Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Then he appeals and calls on him to rescue. God, are you good for these promises? Are you going to do it? I've encouraged you before as we've looked at many of these Psalms. I think an analogy for us maybe is run a credit check on God. Let's see. Have you been faithful in the past? 
Have you, have you done what you said you were going to do? Has God overstepped? Is his DTI off, his debt-to-income ratio? Has he promised a little too much here? Or can he do it? Of course he can do it. He's God. He will. And that's where the psalm ends. Resolving to trust in the Lord. The tone changes, and so many of the psalms are structured this way. You've probably picked that up. If you've read the psalms or been with us for a little while, there's a cry, there's a lament, there's a wrestling with the character and nature of God, and then ultimately, many of the psalms resolve with this psalm, uh, this verse of hope at the end. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. There's language reminiscent of Psalm 23 about the Lord being the good shepherd. This is not necessarily a great analogy to be a sheep. Most of us don't have a ton of farm experience. Sheep aren't known for being incredibly smart. They're kind of dumb, actually. They follow the herd. They can get themselves in bad spots. The most important thing, I think, to remember about sheep is they don't do well without a shepherd. They have to have a shepherd. And so that's the power of the analogy. You need a shepherd. Of course, pushing forward, we see that Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. John chapter 10. Jesus is the good shepherd. A few reflections, and then we will celebrate communion together. Number one is this. God's plan may seem slow and hard, I remind us of this often because I think it's so important for us to recognize the reality of the life that we're in. We generally aren't great at being patient, are we? I don't think most people I know would not say they excel at patience. God's plan may seem slow and hard. Number two, God's plan may seem hard to understand. God is working, he's at work, But just like he raised up the Chaldeans to conquer Israel, ultimately for his plan and purpose, so that he could bring them back from exile, God may be up to something, and it may not seem to be going your way right now. It's not going to be allowed to prosper forever. I think many of us look around today and think, why do the godless seem to be winning? Why do the wicked prosper? It's the Psalm 73 question, which we looked at last summer. Why do godless people seem to be in charge, seem to have so many resources, seem to have so much influence. Just know, God is at work. It took a while for this to come to fruition in the Old Testament. It could take a while longer, still yet. And then lastly, God's plan involves caring for his sheep. I love the shepherd sheep analogy in the Bible. The shepherds are willing to inconvenience themselves and even endanger themselves for the sake of the sheep. Jesus said, John 10, 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. This comes in context of Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. Just like the Lord is the shepherd, we see them calling on the Lord as the shepherd in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I'm the ultimate fulfillment of this. I am the shepherd. I care for my sheep. I even lay down my life for the sheep. 
it's that sacrifice, him laying down his life, that we come and we get to celebrate today as we move into a time to celebrate and remember communion together. Just a few notes on how we do communion here at Sunrise. In just a moment, our musicians will come to the stage and our servers will come. Uh, Just stay right there in your seat and we will bring communion elements to you. Anybody that's a believer in Jesus Christ is welcome and encouraged to participate in communion today. You don't have to be a member of this particular local church to celebrate communion with us. We welcome you. You If you're a a believer in Jesus Christ, if you don't know where you are, um, if you just have questions, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not, I would just encourage you today, just watch. Uh, Just watch as we celebrate communion together, as we talk through what these elements mean. Just watch today. And then I would also encourage you, find someone after the service and let's have a conversation about what it means to be a follower of Christ. What does it mean? The New Testament often talks about people being in Christ. And that's a really good thing in the New Testament. What does it mean to be in this man, this person that lived some 2,000 years ago? What does that all mean? We would love to talk a little bit more about that with you. Let me pray for us. And as I do that, I'll invite our servers and musicians to come forward.